Good afternoon, and thank you for attending this STS webinar addressing the cardiac surgery opioid crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome STS members, colleagues, and guests to the session today, focusing on an important interdisciplinary team initiative to enhance recovery after surgery. Before I get started, I would like to thank Medtronic for their support for this webinar and the STS Summer Series. I'm Dr. Rakesh Arora, Professor and Head of Cardiac Surgery and Cardiac Critical Care at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg in Canada. And I'll be moderating today's webinar along with Dr. Michael Grant, a social associate professor in anesthesiology and critical care from Johns Hopkins. Dr. Grant will also be a presenter today along with Dr. Daniel Engelman, cardiac surgeon and, and surgical director of, of the heart and vascular critical care service at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. We'll also be joined by esteemed panelists, Dr. Rita Maluski, professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Michael Furstenberg from the Medical Center of Aurora in Colorado, Dr. Natalie Waugh, Assistant Professor in Cardiac Surgery at Boston Children's Hospital and Director of the ERAS Cardiac Program at Boston as well. Uh, and following these presentations, we'll have time for all your questions. As a reminder, you can submit your questions via the question and answer button at the bottom of the screen, and we'll try to get to as many of these questions as possible. Lastly, if you're interested in this topic and other topics like it, don't forget to register for the STS 17th Annual Perioperative and critical care virtual meeting taking place later next month between September 24th and the 26th. Please visit the website at sts.org for more information and registration that'll be open for early bird rates until September 7th. With that, I'd like to hand over to our co-moderator, Dr. Michael Grant. Thanks very much, Rakesh. So uh, we're gonna start today by introducing our first speaker who is Dr. Daniel Engelman. Dan will be addressing the scope of the cardiac surgical opioid crisis with his talk entitled, Why is this even an issue? Thank you, Dan. Thank you. I have no disclosures related to the topics that will be discussed in this presentation. Before I start any talk on perioperative medicine, I like to remind everybody about this article from Michigan that demonstrated that over 80% of the preventable mortality and morbidity that occurs in cardiac surgery occurs outside of the operating room. Today, we're going to discuss one area of morbidity or potential morbidity, and that is opioid prescriptions. Surgery is a significant risk factor for long-term opioid dependence, and cardiac surgery results in more chronic opioid users than virtually any other surgical subspecialty. Compared to an already alarming background rate of 5% new persistent opioid use in patients after general surgery, estimated rates following cardiac surgery range from 8% to as much as 12%. Studies show that when used in the setting of true severe pain, addiction or physiologic dependency is extremely rare. This study recently published in JAMA Surgery demonstrated a 9.8% rate of new persistent opioid use 90 to 180 days following cardiac surgery a dose of greater than 300 oral morphine equivalents or OMEs upon discharge increased the risk. This study in the annals demonstrated a rate of almost 13% with the greatest risk in those patients who received greater than 450 OMEs. This large cohort study in JAMA surgery demonstrated that 36% of surgery patients received no opioids in the 24 hours prior to discharge, yet 45% of them were nonetheless prescribed opioids when they left the hospital. This report from the CDC demonstrates that the risk of persistent opioid use increases five days after discharge. This inflection point results in a 10% one-year risk and doubles to 20% at 10 days after discharge. 
Some countries, such as Sweden, do a much better job at limiting opioid use. This JAMA manuscript demonstrated that only 11% of patients filled opioid prescriptions following major surgery, which included cardiac surgery, compared with 70% of those in North America from Canada and the US. Opioids are the most common prescription following autocardiac surgery. They contribute to the most common postoperative short-term complications, such as GI, respiratory, and neurologic. And there is extensive variability in practice patterns, which are poorly understood. Several studies have demonstrated increased opioid requirements and worsened pain scores in patients exposed to high-dose intraoperative opioids. This is termed opioid-induced hyperanalgesia. And that's why it's very important that we have some sense of how much opioid we're giving at the time of surgery, because less opioids given during surgery will result in less needs for opioids postoperatively. The federal government is acutely aware of this problem and is attempting to combat this crisis. Notwithstanding, no healthcare provider wants their patients to experience pain. Adequate pain management is essential to postoperative healing and recovery and is also the cornerstone of humane quality patient care. However, it's become increasingly clear that soaring rates of opioid misuse, diversion, dependence, overdose, and death among Americans have been the unintended consequence of a combination of good intentions, perverse incentives, and a lack of evidence-based guidance for best practice. Everything changed for me in May of 2019 when I received this somewhat dirty letter from CMS. And what it said was that I had been prescribing too many opioids to my patients upon discharge. I was above the average MME per provider per beneficiary. And I really didn't even know what an MME was or how to calculate it. And that's what really got me interested in this topic and made me dive a little bit deeper. Perioperative opioid management strategies must change, but where do we start? Our experience suggests beginning with improved situational awareness. In an ICU setting, situational awareness refers to the ability to quickly survey and grasp relationships between a huge variety and volume of continually evolving longitudinal patient data. In theory, remaining situationally aware of a patient's subjective experience of pain and opioid exposure over the course of an episode of care would facilitate opioid benchmarking, titration, guided escalation, de-escalation, and patient education. We use a patient engagement app which guides patients preoperatively and postoperatively by a phone, tablet, or computer. This allows us to co collect PROs, patient reported outcome measures, and we specifically ask every patient every day how much pain they have, among other questions, and we're able to get that information in real time. That allows us to benchmark and improve pain management from a patient's perspective. This patient-centered care allows us to look at average opioid consumption as reported by the patients. We look at wound pain while they're in the hospital and then post-discharge and finally their opioid consumption as reported by the patient. And it also lets us compare to these other four healthcare systems that are giving the exact same questions to their patients. We then get on monthly calls and ask these other hospitals, how are you getting these uh, post-op pain scores? So we compare the high performers, which here was Montreal Heart, to the low performers, and we go through all of their systems and we raise the bar for everybody. In practice, maintaining awareness of patients' overall opioid exposure across days of changing doses and schedules, drug rotations, and multiple prescribers is a daunting task for two fundamental reasons. The first is that milligram for milligram, Different prescription opioids have vastly different potencies. 
any meaningful assessment of longitudinal exposure first requires that each individual dispensed medication is converted into a single standardized metric, the morphine milligram equivalent, or MME. MME is a proven, albeit underused and poorly understood analytical tool that attenuates the complexity of the analysis by allowing various opioid doses and schedules to be collapsed into a single snapshot for easier decision-making. The individual calculations are not difficult, but they require a significant investment in, cl in clinician mindshare, intra-team communication, and time required for manual chart review and calculations. Tools for easy opioid data extraction and analysis are, are built into standard EMR platforms. As part of a program to reduce intraoperative inpatient post-operative and post-discharge opioid utilization, we developed a software application that extracts patient data directly from any Cerner or Epic EMR, converts those data to morphine milligram equivalents, and graphically displays them for easy tracking and comparison throughout the episode of care. The graphical presentation shown here facilitates identification of trends and alerts clinician users to patterns that may indicate an opportunity for drug de-escalation discontinuation, or from refraining from prescribing opioids at discharge. The app was designed to be used in conjunction with pain assessment tools to aid the team in reducing opioid prescriptions and consumption over the course of in-hospital recovery and upon discharge. In summary, as a next step, we must educate patients and practitioners about the risks of new persistent opioid use following CT surgery. We must measure, track, and reduce MMEs delivered intraoperatively, postoperatively, and upon discharge. We need to standardize evidence-based best practice surrounding multimodal analgesia and non-opioid alternative pain modalities. And as a future step, we should consider asking patients to bring unused opioids to their first post-operative visit for disposal. We will be uh, having an open panel for questions from the audience after Dr. Grant's lecture. Thank you for your attention and, your, and this invitation to speak. Thanks very much, Dr. Engelman. Those are really, I think, important talk, really summating why this isn't even an issue with some really important drive home points at the end. We'll next transition to Dr. Michael Grant. He'll talk about now what do I do when we have this issue. Mike? Thanks very much, Rakesh. And um, again, it's a pleasure to be here today. Really happy to talk on this topic. I think it's an important one. And so I think now that we've got a lay of the land of where opioids have been um, the opioid use has been exacerbated by cardiac surgery, I think it's helpful to think about what we as individuals can do going forward. And so one of the ways that I consider this, and just to say I have no financial relationships associated with this talk, is to think about how you can reduce opioids on an individual provider, but also an individual service line standard. And when you think about opioid reduction, I think about a more or less a three-pronged approach to how we can reduce opioids in cardiac surgery. The first and this was mentioned a little bit by Dan, is this notion of education, which I'll go into in some detail. Protocolization, which is the idea that we're going to do this consistently every time and develop protocols around a strategy to reduce opioids. And then administration, that is that across all of your service line, there has to be consistency, but you also need to have some of the greater hallmarks and benchmarks put in place. So starting with education, so as many people understand, um, you know, the history of cardiac surgery is opioid use. You know, all of cardiac surgery has been able to evolve because the actual anesthetic itself was an opioid-based anesthetic. And coming from the 1960s, when they first began some of the experiments around this, we really haven't evolved an awful lot. It turns out that we still use somewhere between 10 to 15 
milligrams per kilo of, fen of fentanyl for each one of these cases, which is really kind of an amazing dose of anesthetic. And so when you think about the fact that we have such a history and we're talking about six to seven decades worth of its use, we have to really turn the education piece on its head. And part of that is to start by educating the providers themselves. So it turns out that there are outlines for how you can use opioids both perioperatively and chronically. And so one of the best outlines that we actually have at our disposal is from the CDC, which involves the use of opioids for chronic pain. And within that guideline, I'll point out that one of the concepts they really prescribe here is that you're supposed to use the lowest effective dose of opioids for the shortest duration possible. This may be something that we think an awful lot about on a regular basis, but what we don't often consider is that it turns out opioids were not intended to be first line pain agents. In fact, opioids are considered the alternative or the ancillary or the backup to using a number of other agents instead. And we'll get to what those agents might look like. And when we think about not only educating the providers, thinking about how they're supposed to approach analgesia a little differently, we also then have to educate the patients. And so a lot of this is engaging the patients ahead of time and talking about the experience of pain. It turns out that as you guys may be aware, Prescaney has become quite popular because it's linked a lot of our reimbursements to whether patients have satisfying overall experiences. And one of the major line items in that is pain tolerance or pain control. And many times people think that pain tolerance or pain control is linked to whether or not pain is zero. And in fact, that's not the case. Patients tend to actually do much better if you've simply addressed pain rather than try to drive a pain score to zero. If you regularly engage the patient, give them expectations for what pain might look like and address the pain at a regular interval, um, you can have success in that engagement. And this is really a lot of what we need to do, not only engage our providers, but, provide, but actually engage the patients and educate them ahead of time. But there's more than that. Not only do you have to have an idea of where this pain is going to go during the encounter, you have to have an idea of how you're gonna manage that pain if I'm getting ready to tell you that we're gonna remove opioids from the equation. So it turns out that this has been investigated quite a lot. And what I've shown here is a representation representative network analysis, which really outlines the fact that we've investigated a number of non-opioids across a host of different surgical service lines. And this is over thousands and thousands of patients and hundreds and hundreds of trials. So we, we actually know this information quite well. And what we know is that there are agents that can aid us, things that we can use perioperatively that are non-opioid based that can help to not only improve opioid consumption, meaning drive down how much we use, but do it in a way that doesn't expense optimal analgesia. So an example here is in acetaminophen. This is a nice trial that showed that when used in a standing fashion perioperatively for cardiac surgery, patients had a lower overall 24 and 48 hour opioid consumption rate, but had same pain scores. Really, really important. We're not expensing optimal analgesia to use one of these agents. Similarly, gabapentinoids have been investigated for, for that same endpoint. If you look at gabapentin, which is depicted on the left, and pregabalin, which is depicted on the right, in each case, they showed a significant reduction in opioid consumption throughout the perioperative stay. And furthermore, their pain scores were not just unchanged, they were actually improved by using this regimen compared to an opioid-based alternative. And again, what that really tells you is that there's an opportunity to use an agent 
um, that has its own outlines. And we're gonna talk about some of the benefits and negatives of some of these agents, hopefully over the course of this hour long period. Um, but suffice it to say, we have other agents at our disposal. Another one that's been investigated quite a bit and is growing in popularity is the agent ketamine. Now, this is one that I use commonly in my practice and it's something that has been shown in prior study and it's outlined nicely here in this graphic that it will reduce opioid consumption if used during the course of the procedure and then carried into the post-operative phase as a subhypnotic infusion. Again, we can talk about some of this terminology. It not only reduces some of the opioid exposure, but also improves um, things like rate to extubation, um, overall PCA use, and things of that nature. Dexmetomidine or Presidex is a line item that I think a lot of us are thinking an awful lot more about. There may be some potential benefits in this from a delirium standpoint um, or reducing some of our overall sedation profiles. But one of the things that people don't recognize is that it actually is an agent to reduce fentanyl use as well. Patients enjoy better overall pain scores, um, but also reduce their overall consumption of opioids. And then what is often underappreciated is the role of regional anesthesia or analgesia. And in this case, you can see there's a depiction of a variety of nerves that go around the various locations that we may be making incision. And there's a variety of different regional approaches that we can utilize. And each one of these has been shown in non-cardiac settings, but in cardiac to an extent, to reduce some of the overall opioid requirements as well. And we can talk more about this when we get to our question and answer sessions. And at end, what you're really trying to think about here is across the entire phase of the, of the care, how can I inject various individual agents, non-opioid agents, in such a way that I can exact the overall benefit? Well, one of the potential outlines might be that you think about not only preempting analgesia by giving some of the, these agents orally before the OR, this is in the immediate preoperative area, but then administering them in a standing fashion postoperatively. Intraoperatively, we have a number of different agents at our disposal that are intravenous agents that not only minimize the amount of overall anesthetic that we actually have to provide, but reduces the opioid exposure, one of the key hallmarks that Dan mentioned during the course of his talk. And a number of these agents can be transitioned into the postoperative phase, whether or not the patient has been extubated, and again, help to aid in reduction in overall opioid exposure. But importantly, some of this stuff, although outlined ad nauseum and provided, by the way, in a set of recent recommendations um, put out by the Enhanced Recovery um, Cardiac Surgery Society, what's, what's important to remember is you can do all of this stuff and you can still be undermined at the end. And I wanted to include a really interesting trial that has come out over the last several years. This is actually done in the colorectal population. So it turns out that you can install an entire enhanced recovery protocol. You can install a number of different multimodal analgesics depicted here. And your entire protocol can drive opioid use down to a fraction of what it was before. And the majority of your patients cannot be taking opioids at the time of discharge. And what this trial shows is if you don't marry that with a concerted prescription algorithm, meaning defining how much opioid they need before they leave the hospital, and giving them a, a prescription that um, meets that opioid requirement, you actually may not change your overall opioid usage on the discharge side of things. So what we're finding is that in this particular case, these patients, despite having all the multimodals in the world and reducing opioid use in the hospital, still ended up using just as much opioid after discharge. And so what I'd like to call 
attention to once again is the study that Dan referred to. One of the things that was really compelling here is the more opioid you prescribe at discharge, whether or not the patient needs it, the more likely they are to stay on opioids at 90 and 120 days. And what that really behooves us to do is to do as Dan mentioned, which is have some increased situa situational awareness about what the opioid requirement is for that patient group. Um, do some back of the napkin calculation if you need to, um, but recognizing there may be some alternative approaches to help to aid in this regard, and then prescribing things appropriately for patients to leave the hospital. And again, this can be um, um, fodder for us to continue to discuss this after the course of these presentations. And so in conclusion, I would just offer that there's a number of ways to do this, and some of this is still fluid and being investigated readily, but there, the three-pronged approach that I'd recommend as outlined here, I think is a nice starting point for anybody who's interested in reducing opioids in their cardiac surgical population. Great, thanks for those excellent insights, Dr. Grant. We'll now open up the questions to the audience, and we're delighted to have a panel of experts from both adult and pediatric populations. In the remaining time we have allotted for the discussion, you can submit questions through the Q&A button down below, and you can upvote certain questions that you think are most important that you'd like our panelists to respond to. Over the next 40 minutes, we'll talk about various topics, both in the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative phases related to perioperative discomfort management. And I also want to remind you that the session is being recorded and will be available on the STS website and our YouTube channel in the near future. So as we're getting all our panelists to turn the cameras on and mics on and waiting for some questions to roll in, I'll start with the first one for Dr. Maluski. Looking at the preoperative phase, are there any good uh, techniques or processes you've learned at your, in your practice or in your center to assess a patient's pain threshold or tolerance? And how do you start that negotiation, as Michael and Dan both alluded to, of setting the stage of what their post-operative phase of pain management may look like and also upon discharge? Well, there are several preoperative risk tools that are available out there. Um, and it really depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for anxiety? There's a, a scale called a head scale if you're looking if the patient has anxiety. Or are you actually looking for a, a, a patient who is naive to opioids and you're looking for their pain? There's something that's as simple as a blood pressure cuff. And that can actually correlate, their tolerance to a blood pressure cuff can actually correlate to how much opioids that they're going to use. Uh, there are also some self-assessment questionnaires as to how much, how well they tolerate pain and or if they're a chronic uh, opioid user, how much uh, opioids that they do use or how much chronic pain that they have. So it really depends on the patient as to what type of preoperative tool that you would utilize, whether you ask the patient to, to self-report or whether you, uh, you know the patient has chronic pain and you go down that route with several of those tools, or if you just are uh, talking to a patient who you think is probably opioid naive and just doing the blood pressure cuff or the pain tolerance. Yeah, so I think those are really good points. I think you made an important distinction as well for all of us to consider, and we can probably pull this out with a panel as we go forward, is really the naive opioid user coming in for the procedure versus those with more of a, a longer standing or chronic opioid um, uh, usage based on chronic conditions and so forth. And I think a lot of the discussion we've talked about today and probably the better focus for today is on the acute or naive patient, but really to recognize there are those chronic opioid users as well. Um, great. I just see Rick, a question Rick, come through. Yeah, Rakesh, uh, yeah. we wanted to call attention to one of the questions that have just been brought in, which I think is great. Um, the question is from Joe Terry, and he mentions that 
Um, there can be a breakdown when just one weak, weak link exists in a care pathway. A surgeon or whomever can do everything right and it can still break down. How do you educate each one of the care providers throughout that care pathway, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you know, I'd love to hear from Natalie um, if we could, because I know that she manages the enhanced recovery for pediatrics um, at her institution. So, so Natalie, how do you guys approach that concept? Yeah, thank you for asking. We, um, when we started our ERAS program, we sat down with, you know, as a multidisciplinary group with our um, some some key uh, members, um, anesthesiologists, cardiologists, uh, critical care physicians, and surgeons, and established some protocols. We um, review uh, data related to our program on a monthly basis with our nurses and our, uh, you know, our entire group, and every everybody is invited to that meeting. In addition, we then um, have discussions with the, the key members of, of the group, whether or not we go back with the anesthesia, uh, cardiac anesthesia group or, or um, uh, other groups to um, really uh, approach these, um, these topics and where we need improvement. Uh, but it requires, and it does require um, buy-in from, uh, you know, the nursing team, a program coordinator who uh, can sort of link between the physicians and, and the bedside providers to make sure that everybody feels heard and, and issues that come up are being addressed. Great. I think really great wisdom. And I think pediatrics often has clinical pathways that develop before we do in the adult world. So I think some important lessons there as well. Um, uh, Mike, any other questions from the QA panel before I move on to our next one that we have for the panel? Yeah, there's another one here that I'd, I'd like to talk about. So um, Thomas uh, McGillivray um, mentioned that, um, what recommendations do you have to help manage patients' expectations? Their concerns about patient satisfaction scores. Um, obviously, we've talked about that just briefly, um, but don't feel that they are given appropriate pain medicine. Um, you know, I might ask Dan to, to answer this one, you know, because I know he's, he's dealt with a number of these situations. You know, Dan, how do you think about patient satisfaction? How do you think about engaging the patient when you're thinking about some of the Prescani score information that we talked about? So uh, every patient I see uh, postoperatively every day, I always ask them about how much pain they're having, which immediately I think helps your Prescani score or your uh, survey scores, because one of the questions is, did somebody actually ask you about your pain? So that's the first step actually asking them on rounds. I, I, I make it a point to ask every patient. And then when they tell me they have pain, I actually ask them to grade it. And really what I'm looking for is, is it tolerable? And I tell these patients that there's a, um, a huge side effect to these pain medicines and that um, we can take away all their pain, but they're going to be nauseous and dizzy and delirious, and it'll be worse than having a little pain. So what I'm looking for is a tolerable amount of pain. And I always tell them that's four or less. That's sort of my scale. And it's surprising how many patients actually have that with very little uh, pain medication on board. So I think it's uh, an actual um, attention to asking every single patient every day about their pain that will immediately uh, elevate your uh, scores. Yeah, I want to call real quick attention to one of the things you said that I think is key, and that is that it, the Prescani isn't linked to whether or not pain scores are, are, are zero. Or, or it, What's most important is that we've engaged the patient on a regular basis to work with them about how to manage their pain together. And, and that's one of the things that's been shown in literature as well. Great, great tidbits. Maybe the next one I'll move on to is from Mike Furstenberg. What do you see as a role of dexmedetomidine in initiation in the OR to facilitate things like early extubation, perioperative pain management, mobilization, and so forth? So Rakesh, thanks. Uh, to be honest, the more that I've looked into Presidex, dexmedetomidine, the more I've been really impressed that it's a wonderful drug that just kind of solves 
but helps address a lot of the problems that we deal with. Uh, I think uh, both uh, Michael and, and Dan mentioned, you know, some of the issues that help with early extubation and coming down with delirium. But if you look across the board, there's a lot of good physiologic benefits from it. I think that it has been shown to decrease the risk of uh, ischemic strokes or the significance of it. There is some good end organ protection that comes from it, including on the heart, uh, as well as uh, the lungs, the kidneys, the rest of the body. And it is, at least in my mind, a drug that has a lot of the benefits of things like steroids that we hoped for over the years, but also not a lot of the downsides from some of the um, you know, immune suppressive components to it. I think the real issue that's being debated right now is actually when, not whether to use it, but actually when to start it. I've been pushing our anesthesiologist, and it'll be interesting to see what uh, Michael, you know, has to say about this, but our anesthesiologist actually started at induction rather than towards the end of the case, because I think, you know, those overall benefits, not just in terms of pain, but neurocognitive can really help address a lot of the issues that we're seeing here. And I think the sooner we wake people up, the sooner we get them off the ventilator, the sooner we get the chest tubes out, the sooner we decrease all these inflammatory mediators and interleukins, the better off they feel and the less narcotics we need to use to offset some of those problems. I think it's a wonderful drug and you know, no disclaimers or disclosures with it, but I think we should be using it in everybody. So quite liberal, your center. What about the rest of the panel? Rita, what do you, what's your approach with DEX in the perioperative patient? Been using it in the, per, in the yeah, starting it intraoperatively, but uh, we've been starting it as we come off bypass. And it can really help with uh, early extubation, uh, get the patients extubated either, you know, in the operating room or, or, or as soon as we get them uh, to, the, um, to the intensive care unit. And obviously does help with the uh, delirium aspect of it as well, but we have been utilizing it and starting it in the operating room. And the advantage of that uh, dexmatomidine versus propofol uh, for those who are, you know, are thinking about it is uh, that it does not uh, depress your respiratory function. So it allows right. for extubation <laughs> and you continue to give it after extubation. Uh, but Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's not truly a pain medication. It doesn't, it shouldn't be used for pain per se. Yes, oh. so, Oh, okay, go Either ahead. Mike. But by all means, Mike, go ahead. I was going to say, it, it, you're correct. It, it is not a pain medication. You know, it should not uh, supplement uh, true pain relief. Uh, but I think, you know, the anxiolytic properties uh, that can help take the edge off, so to speak, uh, make it easier to get people safely extubated without having to treat them with narcotics, without having to treat them with uh, benzodiazepines or some of the other drugs that we're talking about that lead patients down this pathway. So I'm talking particularly the first couple of hours, like Rita mentioned, coming off of bypass in the ICU, patients are thrashing about, they appear uncomfortable, uh, we're trying to control them, they're pulling at their tubes, rather than sedating them more with uh, more pain medication or more sedatives, if we can just kind of tie them over with a little bit of Presidex. And even after we get them extubated, it really, you know, a little bit goes a long way. And I think, you know, some of the physiologic concerns of Presidex, which I think are real, uh, we can very easily deal with in the cardiac, cardiac surgical population. It's a great drug. Are there any patients you wouldn't use it in? No. No. 
people that are allergic to it, I mean, or people that have had problems with it before. I mean, even unstable patients, I think, you know, there's a concern that it can cause hypotension. I think there's, you know, legitimate concerns that it can cause bradycardia. But again, in our patient population, one, you either just stop it or wean the drug, or particularly in cardiac surgery, the benefits of it, you know, if they really get bradycardic, you know, hopefully those patients have pacing wires and you just pace them through it. Uh, I would not stop Presidex, and I try to discourage stopping Presidex because patients get bradycardic. Uh, I think the benefits are that good, and once they start waking up and warming up, then, you know, hopefully that bradycardia goes away. Okay, thanks, Mike. I mean, the next one for the other Mike, Mike Grant. Regional approaches. Who should do it? Which one, pre-op, post-op, and where? In the OR versus the ICU? What are your thoughts about uh, uh, that the various techniques for regional anesthesia? Yeah, so, so I really love this question. And, and by the way, this is probably the most exciting area of research in cardiac from, from an anesthetic standpoint. Um, you know, this has been, as I mentioned, really underutilized. Um, the graphic that I showed from prior is, is really helpful because what it allows you to kind of have a sense for is that there are a number of approaches to regional anesthesia. Um, and a number of the questions from the question and answer session have asked, what are the best blocks we can do? When should we do them? Who should do them? Okay. So the short answer is there's a lot to be discovered, but I'll tell you that from my own practice, there's probably two different ways you could think about this. The first is you could do this preoperatively and have a concerted outline for it where you engage either your regionalists, if you have that service at your hospital or your anesthesiologists to put in blocks that they're very familiar with. Um, things like an erector spinae catheter, for example, is not an epidural, but works in some similar fashion and has some of the some some less side effect, lesser side effects that we don't get as nervous about with things like full anticoagulation. Um, alternatively, um, if you want to wait until the post-operative phase, which is actually what we favor at Johns Hopkins, um, you can do sing, what we call single shot techniques, where you have access to the chest either prior to extubation or on the table just after you've taken drapes down. And it's an opportunity for you to use an ultrasound technique and do a fascial nerve plane block. Um, again, a number of techniques, the actual technical aspects are probably a little beyond the scope of our, of our webinar today. But you, know, you really could engage your anesthesiologist to, to learn this. By the way, we taught 19 of our providers how to do the, these very simple blocks in a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, I, by the way, I'd love to hear Natalie's experience in this in the pediatric population, because I know it's a little bit different. Um, but the, the long story short is, I think this is an area that is underutilized, and there's an awful lot we can learn and an awful lot of opportunity here. Yeah, so we, um, we uh, piloted a study last year where we looked at erector spinae, uh, bilateral erector spinae blocks for post-sternotomy pain, and we had very promise, we had uh, very minimal side effects and very promising results in terms of um, you know opioid reduction. Um, so we we're currently undergoing another uh, study using these blocks. Um, we're about to start this this other phase of the study. Uh, we have been also using erector spinae um, and thoracotomies uh, for a couple of years at our institution, and um, and as, as there's a pref preference towards using these blocks rather than uh, paravertebrals in thoracotomy patients. So it, it's it's very exciting, and it really sort of uses the the whole spectrum of the multimodal um, pain regimen. Great, thank you for those insights, guys. Next one, I'm going to move a little bit to the post-operative phase now. NSAIDs, good, bad, or indifferent? I see this one of the questions from Andy Fagan in the. QA window there as well. I'll turn this to both Mike and Rita because I know you have similar but yet different opinions. Maybe Rita, I'll give you first crack at it. Use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in the perioperative phase. 
perioperative, uh, we don't um, order them routinely, obviously. And if we do order them, we don't order them in a PRN fashion. We utilize them primarily for the younger patients, uh, more or less normal kidney function, um, and utilize it one dose or maybe two dose order at a time. Very individualized and very, uh, very point, pointed towards whether it is a young patient, what, what surgery they had. So primarily our young congenitals who have had an ASD repair or something along those lines, but very rarely in an older patient, very rarely. Mike Furstenberg? Yeah, yep, sorry about that. You know, it's this. I'm laughing because this is a very controversial topic. I think that when you start looking at them, I think to a certain extent, to Rita's point, and I know that uh, you know Dan has got some opinions on this, but uh, which I I agree with. You know, I think we need to recognize that every therapy that we give has upsides and downsides, right. and you know, while some of these drugs, whether it's you know the Motrin's or all the way up to uh, you know. Uh, some of the controversy with the COX-2 inhibitors in the past, which were uh, Toradol, you know, they can be very effective, but we need to be very careful about patients that have, for example, underlying renal disease. Even, you know, as we're realizing more and more, and not to steal Dan's thunder in this, but as we're realizing more and more, you know, even minor elevations in creatinine or deterioration in renal function after cardiac surgery or any type of intervention, we're starting to recognize has some pretty deteriorous uh, effects down the road. So it becomes a balance. So I think, you know, to Rita's point, and, you know, and this came up when we were talking about it with, you know, with Natalie, you know, if you've got somebody that's relatively young, they don't have a lot of peripheral vascular disease, they've got good kidney function, you know, again, the, the use of some of these drugs is, is helpful, but we need to really kind of offset that with some of the concerns that it may cause other end organ dysfunction, which while seem, may seem trivial, uh, it really is not. And it's something that we need to keep the bigger picture. Just like we don't want patients uh, getting addicted to some of these drugs, we also don't want them six months down the road having a very prompt deterioration in their renal function. You know, we're in this for the long haul and we need to recognize that. And again, we give it usually just one dose and an individual dose at, uh, at a time, never, never writing it for more than one dose at a time. Yeah. Thanks, Rita and Mike. Dan, what's your opinion on this? Well, I've tried using Tortal on multiple occasions. Uh, I mean, there's that black box warning against cabbage patients. So we said, all right, let's just limit it to young valve patients with normal creatinines. They're uh, making good urine. Uh, normally, if uh, EGFR, everything's great. Uh, and I'm still seeing a significant percentage of these patients with a slight bump in their serum creatinine, which is associated with uh, poor short and long-term morbidity and mortality. I'm talking even just a 0.3 increase in your serum creatinine uh, that otherwise is avoidable. I'm seeing that over and over again. So on my service, we have stopped using all Toradol on every single uh, cardiac surgical patient because I just can't predict who's going to have that tiny little bump in their creatinine. So I would say that unless you're willing to look at your data that close and retrospectively look at those patients that received Toradol for a, uh, any change in uh, serum creatinine in the post-operative phase, uh, I would say it probably should not be used. Dan, Natalie, I know pediatrics are not just small people, but they're, they have different philosophies. What's your, what's your use in the pediatric world? So it's not indicated in patients less than six months of age, but we use it for, for moderate complex, mild to moderate complexity lesions. Uh, patients who are part of the ERAS program, um, we, we 
try to use it. If patients go um, and have sur surgery under circ arrest or have complex repairs, biventricular repairs, then they're, they're not candidate for that. Okay, great. Um, switch gears just a little bit. We talked about using non-steroidals and others, but really trying to limit the overall amount of opioids you're using and using a calculator. Both Dan and Mike touched on this. Maybe I'll start this with, with um, Dan first. How do you calculate MME? What's an easy way to do this for the teams who want to implement some sort of tool? Uh, my answer is there's no easy way. My pharmacist can do it, but it takes uh, a long time. He has to actually open up the medication administration record and go through and not look at necessarily what's ordered, but what's been actually administered. Uh, and that there are different times, different doses, and then needs to be converted. Uh, and we need to uh, have a better uh, sense of how many MMEs a patient is taking uh, throughout their post-operative course. And then we need to, on rounds every single day, discontinue those high-dose MME drugs, the Dilaudid's, the Percocets, uh, or the uh, Oxycontins. Uh, and we need to switch to the lower MME drugs, the um, Tramadols, or the uh, hopefully something that has no opioid in it, such as uh, multimodal gabapentin or uh, some other, uh, just Tylenol. Every single patient should receive a maximal Tylenol, one gram, uh, every six hours, even if they have no pain throughout their entire post-operative course. Uh, and there's really no excuse for not giving Tylenol except for a patient that uh, has underlying uh, liver disease. Uh, but I mean, I don't calculate it, but uh, Dr. Mike Grant, I think you do sit there with a calculator or maybe it's an abacus or something and, and figure out the uh, uh, MMB doses. How yeah. do you do it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think this is a really great discussion. You know, um, at the first handful of times that you do this, it is, it is, it's a little bit of a bulky exercise. Um, I'd make the argument that, you know, much of what we do and t um, take for granted that we do quite quickly um, took some time to get used to. And I think your point that was most important was this is something that we need to build into our practice on a daily basis. This is part of our workflow. We're calculating this um, concertedly every day on each patient. And I, I think that really makes that calculate, calculation feel a little bit more natural. I will say that we are getting to the point where a lot of our um, in-house um, applications are helping us to be able to do this a little bit more readily. I know a lot of people have taken advantage of being on an Epic or a Cerner platform where we can start building some of this functionality into our own databases. So, you know, long story short, this is an evolving area, but it is something that if you do naturally on a regular basis, you'll, you'll, you'll gain a knack for it just like anything else. So to spin this potentially in, a, in, a, in an avenue that might be challenging us for us to, to talk through, but let's try it anyways. A few questions coming through as well as we had one uh, previously discussed amongst our own group was, what do you do for the patient who's got, say, higher than average requirements for perioperative opioids? Particularly those, say, for example, the intravenous drug uh, users or those who have chronic or narcotic use for a time due to other chronic illnesses, back pain, et cetera. What's, your, what's the approach to dealing with those patients postoperatively? So I'm willing to take a quick stab at this, um, and then I'd, be, I'd, I'd love to hear some feedback. So, you know, this is a really incredibly challenging population. I'll tell you that we actually don't have literature for this, um, although we'd love to have it. Um, the short and sweet on this is it's a noble enterprise to try to reduce a patient's opioid requirements when they're a chronic opioid user perioperatively, but I can tell you that there's very little data that suggests that that's beneficial. Um, more importantly is for you to be able to replace MME for MME, what they require on a daily basis. So that's if it's a heroin abuser, you really do need to figure out a way to estimate what that use or abuse is and then calculate that. And by the way, there is a way to do that to some equivalent that you can provide them on a daily basis. And I recommend anybody who's on a chronic opioid of any kind, whether it's prescribed or otherwise, to take their opioids the day of surgery. So that means in the morning, they'll have all of that within their system, obviously, to begin. 
And then the second thing that I think an awful lot about with some of these patients is something called a opioid sparing opioid technique. And this has been um, really pioneered by a couple of different groups. But one of the concepts is that you might even think about giving something like an IV morphine equivalent or an IV methadone equivalent in the operating room. And what that might allow you to do is provide a layer of opioids that meets their baseline exposure rate and then reduce the necessity to escalate those opioids. The goal in chronic opioid users is not for you to go opioid free. In fact, that's a, that could be very harmful. It's actually to try to prevent escalation of opioids during that perioperative encounter. Not easy, admittedly so, but you know, the key is to really understand what their opioid requirements are, layer on multimodals, and give them MME for MME what they had before. So really, really great tips. I'm going to just summarize what I think I heard was that anticipate there's going to be an issue, communicate with the patient to understand what their basal level rate will be, leverage your interdisciplinary team, and use techniques to meet that basal requirement, and don't really think that you're going to get them off their drugs whilst they're in hospital postoperatively. Those are great tips. Mike, yeah. So obviously, you know, we see a lot of this in the urban adult population in the population that you describe, and that is endocarditis, chronic pain stuff. And while I think the focus on the things that we were talking about today were more the opioid naive, I think we have to recognize that uh, we have a lot of people coming in. And I think a couple of practical aspects. One is trying to be honest with the patients. Uh, I think if we have a good uh, relationship with the patient, they try to be honest with us. And the concern that I have is, especially in the post-operative period, if we give them the drugs that they say that they are taking, they may inherently escalate that by themselves. And then I've had numerous patients over the years where if we give them what they say they're taking in terms of result, returning back to their baseline, they get uptunded because we've essentially overdosed them because they say they're taking more than they actually are. I think so we need to be really kind of cognizant about, you know, kind of titrating these drugs back up again. Uh, and I think also recognizing that the acute event of cardiac surgery, no matter what the circumstance is part of a long term journey, much like, you know, we return these patients to their cardiologist for statin control, blood pressure control, uh, heart failure management. When we see patients that are on these uh, long acting uh, drugs, we need to make sure that they get back to their pain management clinics. Uh, and if they're not plugged into them, I think we have some obligation to get them into a pain management clinic, to get them back to their providers and help them get over the hump, uh, especially those with, let's say, endocarditis. Part of the whole success of treating patients with endocarditis uh, from drug abuse, for example, is getting them plugged into a substance abuse program afterwards. The people that are able to do that are much more uh, likely to get over the hump and less likely to recur. And I think we have an obligation to really engage those specialists and get them plugged in. Everything that we're talking about today is recognizing that the journey just kind of begins once the patient leaves the hospital and we need to send them on a path to success. We just can't turn our eye to everything. Really great points. Rita, you have your point? Uh, yes, we actually have a group that meets every Wednesday when we have an endocarditis or a chronic uh, uh, opioid abuse, whether it's heroin, IV drug abuser. And we, in that multidisciplinary group, we actually have a psychiatrist, pain management, social work, to try to get the patient uh, back on whatever they were on, a Suboxone or their methadone, and then hook them up with uh, whatever clinic, if they had been going to a clinic before, if not get them engaged in a newer clinic 
or if they have to go to a, a rehab afterwards, send them to a, a rehab. But we meet every, every uh, Wednesday afternoon uh, to discuss those patients. And uh, we've recently, obviously, everybody's had uh, a, an upsurge in that. So we try to do just exactly what um, Michael said is to get them hooked back up with a, uh, a, a, a some kind of a clinic or their uh, whoever was prescribing their chronic use before. Great. Okay. I think we maybe move on similar but slightly separate question. Giving the patient control of their own analgesia. We've talked about giving to them, trying to calculate MME. What about the use of patient controlled analgesia? Mike, I know you have some opinions on this. Yeah. So as, as somebody who's been managing pain for an awful long time as part of the core of my practice, one of the things that has come up an awful lot is the utility of a PCA. And I think oftentimes people think of a PCA as a panacea of pain control, that the patient has ownership of their own pain allotment and they can engage in their own pain you know, management. I think these are things that we intended to be really helpful. It turns out that there's actually quite a few studies in the non-cardiac population that show that PCAs can be more harmful than helpful. What we know is that they increase the amount of opioids that a patient is provided and that they have irregular pain control. As everybody knows, if a patient falls asleep on a PCA and they wake up, they, they can tend to be an extremist and need to catch up. And you actually can increase the rate of bad outcomes with a PCA because they hit their button a number of times. You may have changed some of the lockouts or scheduling within the PCA. And long story short, all of the good intentions around the use of a PCA are negated. Um, one of the better strategies, to be honest with you, is if you have an oral opportunity, a place for you to, to let them either swallow a pill or use an OG tube, if that's what is required, this will give you a better and more even pain control. And it turns out we don't have any evidence whatsoever to suggest that a PCA has optimal pain control compared to the good old gut. And, and that's really what my recommendation would be. So use the gut where possible. Giving people the button doesn't necessarily make their pain better. Got it. All right, slight change then again. Again, I'm going to ask both Dan and Natalie from. Can we lose Rakesh? <laughs> yeah, so it looks like we lost Rakesh, but I'll go ahead and jump in here. So, I'm back, um, am I back or not? Oh, yeah, there you are. Okay. Hey, I'm sorry. It's a, plans. it's a Canadian internet you use. That's right. As I want to turn, put another dime in the meter. Um, the, uh, the question I was asking is about discharge planning. So, you have the patient, you've set the stage for discharge planning in terms of. Your teams calculate their MMEs and so forth. But when they go home, the bathroom isn't just next door. The bed doesn't go up and down automatically. Their pain um, may be different when they go home. How do you set that stage and negotiate them how much you're going to send them home on and what the plan for follow-up should be? And I'll ask again both Natalie and Dan from the adult and pediatric side. Natalie? Um, I mean, we try to send uh, kids home without opioids, and I say we're successful in over 95% of the time. The teenagers are the ones sometimes that require a few doses, but usually they go home with like a few less than five uh, doses of, of opioids. And we're quite successful at managing uh, patients like that. The adult in general, uh, we do have some of the um, a, a small quantity of those patients that end up uh, with chronic opioid use, but it's not the majority at our institution. But we really try to focus on uh, even having uh, at least 12 to 24 hours opioid free prior to discharge. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to what I was going to say, which is uh, the goal is, I would say, by day four to be off opioids. And that really should be our national or North American goal. 
and then you are sending a patient home who in the prior 12 to 24 hours, 48 hours has not received any opioids. And you can explain to them, you haven't had them then, you're not gonna need them now. Which brings up my next point. I'd be uh, interested in what the panel has to say about the just-in-case prescription. Because nobody wants to be paged in the middle of the night and on weekends. And, and the old way of doing things was, Send home that script, tell them don't fill it yet unless you have a problem or fill it and just put it in your medicine cabinet. Leave it there in case it's you know midnight and you happen to overdo it a little bit and you have some pain uh, and you don't have to go to the pharmacy. And I'd say that we're doing way more harm to society than, uh, than we should because all of those prescriptions end up in each of our medicine cabinets and end up on the streets through uh, some uh, bad uh, you know, um, mechanisms. So I would say we really need to not give the just-in-case prescription any longer. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I'm happy to do a quick echo of that. You know, what we know is that um, at, at least 70% of current heroin users had a gateway that was an, a prescribed opioid. That's an enormous fact, by the way. And the overwhelming majority of people who get those opioids get it through diversion. So that's exactly what you're describing. I got a prescription for X, Y, or Z. It turns out that I didn't need it. I filled it anyway at some point because I started having some knee pain. And then my son, daughter, grandmother, whatever, decided that, okay, I'll go ahead and give that a shot for my pain as well. And then it had a trickle-down effect. And so, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with your perspective here that if you don't need these, um, you absolutely should not prescribe them. I mean, I'd like to blame the orthopedic surgeons for the entire opioid crisis. I mean, I would like to. I'm not sure we can. But I would like to. I, I think as as yes, yes, we can endorse that particular comment. But nonetheless, oh, right. <laughs> but, but part of the problem is that the health systems, whether it's our individual hospitals or society, has to put in some type of a process to facilitate dealing with this. Because the end result, as you mentioned, Rakesh, is that you know none of us want to get called you know on a Saturday night by you know because we happen to be on call on some random patient that we may or may not know who the individual is saying that oh we're ha we just had heart surgery a couple of days ago and we're in a lot of pain you know we don't want to just arbitrarily send them to the emergency room it's difficult to assess them and objectively i don't know about you but you know getting these you know if you're in a busy practice getting these calls continuously you know it's just easier to to be the path of least resistance so Part of that is much like all these things that we're talking about is it's not just even to the first question, it's not just individuals buying into it, but the entire system has to be able to buy into it as well as the expectations and saying, you know what, if you're having a lot of pain, then you probably need to be seen, but don't call at you know six o'clock on a Saturday night expecting somebody to call in a prescription for narcotics. The least of which is we can't do it. You know, most pharmacists, at least in the United States, will not take phone calls, you know, for narcotics over the phone. You know, excellent points. We're just about at time. Mike, anything from the Q&A uh, panel that we should look to prioritize for a question for an answer? So I'd like to touch on what, just one piece, and that is there's at least a couple of people who are interested in the role of IV Tylenol, as opposed, obviously, to an oral equivalent. And I wonder if anybody in the panel has very strong emotions around this topic. I, I think it works great. Uh, it costs $40 a dose. And the good news is this is not an issue nine months from now, because my understanding is it will come off patent and then will be generic and the price will plummet. So my prediction is every single solitary patient who has surgery of any kind in this country will be receiving IV acetaminophen as they do right now in Europe and the rest of the world, because it is so well tolerated and it has a much higher PK and a much higher 
uh, peak of a CSF um, level uh, when it's given in an IV form than oral or rectal. Thanks. I'm going to ask one more question. I, I can see about the use of raboxacin or flexoral other muscle relaxants. And as a, a, a delirium enthusiast, I'll say that those drugs have some pretty strong anticholinergic properties and the risk of perioperative delirium probably outweighs any benefit you may get from those particular agents. And I'm not sure they provide significant benefit, but I don't know if anyone else uses, uses those types of drugs on a regular basis postoperatively. Those drugs scare me. Uh, not necessarily for the delirium aspect of it, but getting to the point I made earlier, you know, these muscle relaxants, particularly in the setting of some of the other drugs. I mean, you know, Dan, Michael, maybe from your perspective, you guys are smarter about this kind of stuff. I, I've seen more patients harmed from a neurocognitive standpoint by muscle relaxants. They just, you know, if somebody tells me they take Flexoril and we give it to them, I can almost bet that we're going to be back an hour later re-intubating that patient. You know, I, I try to avoid them at all costs. Yeah, I'd probably agree. And, and um, one of the biggest things that we know about pain control is that there is a big component of it that is anxiety provoked, something called catastrophizing, where you actually in, you envision pain and therefore the pain is worse. Um, there is some data that suggests that these might address some component of that, but I would agree wholeheartedly with Rakesh and, and Mike that the potential side effect profile of these agents and the fact that they are generally unstudied um, would, would basically suggest that I, I don't know that they have a place when it comes to this multimodal concept. Great. Well, with that, I think we're just about at time. So I want to take this opportunity to thank the STS for hosting this webinar and for the insights and expertise of our panelists and also the audience for these excellent questions over the last hour. I'd also like to remind everyone that the registration for the upcoming perioperative meeting and uh, perioperative medicine and critical care meeting that's coming up at the end of September, September 24th to 26th, shown for you there on the screen, is open. Uh, and it will cover many of these topics in greater detail. Lastly, an additional plug for the STS Workforce for Critical Care 8 and 8 webinar series. These are short little snippets, eight slides, eight minutes on great topics for your perioperative team, including a great talk by Mike uh, Grant on this, on this particular issue as well. Information for all these activities can be found in the STS website at sts.org. Um, and I'll turn it over to Mike Grant uh, just for a few final comments. Uh, to yeah, sign us I'd just like to thank Rakesh, Dan, Michael, Rita, and Natalie for being available today. It was a fantastic discussion. I want to thank everybody out there for um, a lively chat. You know, this was really helpful, I think, to a number of the people in the audience. I'll now turn it back over to Michelle Rush from the STS for some closing remarks. Thank you, Dr. Aurora and Dr. Grant. And thank you to our, all our panelists today for your participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow at STS.org as well as on STS YouTube channel and on the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. We hope you'll join us on Thursday, September 10th at 5 p.m. Central Time for the next webinar titled Surgical Specialties at Risk, How Medicare Cuts to Surgery Will Affect You and Your Patients. Thank you all again and hope to see you back here in September. Thank you, everybody.